0: Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. Well, thank you, Pastor Larry, for most of that. I appreciate it. Um, And thank you, North. It's great to be here with you this morning. So excited. As, uh, as I mentioned, as Larry mentioned, uh, my wife Katie is here with us this week. We got to celebrate our anniversary. And you know, they say that there are gifts that are assigned to each anniversary. Like, I don't know if you knew this, but traditional gifts that are assigned to each anniversary. So the fifth, I think, is wood. The tenth is tin, which I think we need to update these. These are kind of, right? Fifteenth uh, is crystal, and apparently the seventeenth for us is sunburn, because that's what we got this week. So that's what we received this week during our anniversary week. But Uh, We're not complaining because, honestly, uh, in the middle of June, you can do a lot worse weather-wise in Phoenix. Isn't that right? I mean, we grew up here, and so we kind of know this. We're not really complaining. In fact, it's supposed to be 104 degrees, I think, today, which is a blessing for the middle of June. It really is. Growing up here, you would hear people say crazy things from time to time like, hey, once it gets to 100 degrees, it doesn't matter. It's just hot. It could be 104, 115. It really doesn't matter. That's one of the most ridiculous things I think I've ever heard. In fact, it's just the opposite, right? I mean, every degree over 100 degrees, you feel it. And so there's a huge difference between 104 and 115. 104 is beautiful for this time of year. So can we celebrate that all as a blessing this morning? 104, that's all that it is today, which is nice. And anyway, since it's Father's Day, our kids are not here with us this morning. They are down in Tucson with their grandparents, with my parents. And so I wanted to bring a picture of them so that you can see them, there they are, and to show you, first of all, how uh, just precious and adorable they are. Um, secondly, to show you, this is, this is why I am blessed to be a father, and so you can see one of the things I love about this picture in particular is that it shows the personalities of each of our kids, and so from left to right, that's Brooklyn, Peyton, Lincoln, and Kylie, and so now you've met them, and you can see why Father's Day is so special for me today. Um, but today, I get the privilege of continuing The current series, Best Summer Ever. I'm thankful to Pastor Larry for giving me the passage that he's given me this morning because it is one of my favorite passages. I believe it's one of the most essential passages in all of the New Testament, and that's John chapter 15. Any meat eaters here? You guys like steak? You guys like steak? So um, when I think about John 15, I think about John 15 as a porterhouse steak. Anybody had a porterhouse steak before? One of the things I love about a porterhouse steak is it's called the King of T-Bones because it's a bit. that's a picture of it right there, by the way, because it's the biggest steak, but also because you get two steaks in one. You actually get two cuts on each side of the T-Bone, two iconic cuts of steak. On the right-hand side is the filet. Now, you may know the filet as the filet mignon. When you order it on a, in a restaurant, you pay way too much for it, but it is the most tender and most, uh, kind of, is the, is for many people, it's their favorite kind of cut of meat and the most desirable and the most expensive because it's the most tender. It gets right to the point. It's kind of like the heart. It gets right to the point. It's tender. Mignon actually means tender and small and delicate. On the left-hand side, on the other side of the bone, you have what's known as the strip, the New York strip. One of the most iconic steaks, it's the one that you typically see when you see a picture of steak with like asparagus and a baked potato. And what's unique about the New York Strip is that it's marbled. And so as you're cutting into it and you're eating it, depending on the the cut you've got and depending on how the steak is marbled, you're tasting different depths of flavor to it. I like to think of the strip steak as like the steak for the head, right? And so when you put these two together, it's like the head and the heart in one. That's what I think about when I think about John 15. I know that's a weird analogy, but I like steak. So it works for me. Hopefully it works for you. But John 15, the point of this is that it really engages the head and the heart. Now, I, we're living in Portland now, and so I know I need to be sensitive to the vegan community. And so if you're vegan and that analogy just went right past you, I apologize. I don't really have a vegetable version of that. I don't eat a lot of green vegetables, so I'm sorry. But... But this is the point of this is that John 15 is one of those essential passages in the New Testament, really in all of Scripture. And here's the thing is that I, I don't like to say this too much about particular chapters in the Bible because I believe that God's Word is, 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 is connected all from beginning to end, and we need to understand it from beginning to end. His entire redemptive plan is revealed to us in all of Scripture. But there are those passages in Scripture where if you can just read them and grasp them and understand them, they bring to you really the essential nature of what it means to be a Christian, what it means to follow Jesus. John 15 is one of those places. And I know that's a big statement to focus on one passage, but that's the big setup this morning as we get into it. And so if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn to John 15 or use your devices or whatever it may be. We're going to begin reading there in a minute. But as you do, I want to address this for us this morning. I don't know where you are this morning walking into north this morning, into worship, in terms of your relationship with the Lord. You may be struggling. You may be going through a time of suffering. Maybe you're physically, medically suffering right now. Maybe there are relationships around you in your life, your marriage, or in your family, or just in general relationships that are broken and that are struggling. Maybe this morning you walked in and you felt that God was distant or disinterested in what's going on in your life because financial issues are facing you or a job situation that is out of your control seems to be beating you down over and over again. If that's you this morning, you're going to hear words that Jesus says from John 15 that say, abide in me and remain in me. And if you're there this morning, you may feel like that's a distant reality for you. My, hair, my hope and my prayer for you this morning is that you find these words from Jesus to be a refreshing call back to him. This morning, if you're here, and maybe uh, you don't know Jesus this morning, but you're just trying to figure things out. And so when you hear Jesus say something like, I am the vine and you are the branches, it may not make a whole lot of sense to you. But my prayer for you is that you will hear this as an invitation from the God who has created you, from the God who loves you, and from the God who is inviting you to live with him. And then finally, for, uh, I think for a lot of us, John 15 is probably a very familiar passage. We've heard I don't know how many countless sermons on it in church before, maybe you've even taught on it, you've done Bible studies on it. My prayer for you is that I want to encourage you to not let the familiarity of this passage rob you from, what the, from the wonderment of what Jesus is saying here. And so now, no matter where we are this morning, let's all pray that the Holy Spirit would give these words to us as a fresh wind. That God would speak to us and that we would trust that his words are good and faithful and powerful this morning. Lord, would you do that in us this morning? With that being said, let's look at John chapter 15. We're going to start in verse 1. We're going to go through verse 17. This is Jesus, and Jesus says, I am the true vine. My Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may be more fruitful. Verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. And as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you and abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Now these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Now, these things I command you that, so that you will love one another. Now just initially, as we read through that, I think probably what we're struck by is that there's a lot of beautiful imagery to this. And as I said before, it can come off as certainly as tender and heartfelt. There's a lot of personal stuff in this that Jesus is communicating to us. But at the same time, there's also the marbling of the theological nuggets that are in there. There's some depth to this passage as well. And if you're one of those people who loves that theological nugget part, you're kind of like a person after my own heart. I love that as well. Um, We can sometimes get kind of caught in that and bogged down in that. So what I want to do is just focus us in the kind of high level of what it is that Jesus is really focusing us on. In other words, what what does all this tell us about our relationship with God, who Jesus is, and who we are? What is it about Jesus' words here that are so essential? I mean, I just built this passage up as one of the great passages in all of Scripture. And hopefully you can see why, but how do we make sense of it all? What does it mean for us in our everyday lives as we follow Jesus? Well, let's start here. Let's start with the imagery that Jesus uses, the imagery of the grapevine and the branches. When Jesus talks about the vine, he's talking about a grapevine and some branches, And the thing about a grapevine is that, and you don't need to be a gardener to know this, but the purpose of a grapevine is to grow fruit, right? I mean, a grapevine is not a shade tree. It doesn't produce beautiful flowers that smell nice. The single purpose, the solitary purpose of a grapevine is to produce actual grapes, right? It's pretty straightforward. Uh, When we lived in Chandler, we had a house that was beautifully landscaped. We didn't do it. We had no... (laughs) I just tried not to kill it by the time we moved in, but the guy who originally bought the house and built the house, he was actually a horticulturalist, and so a horticulturalist is somebody who works with plants and kind of knows the science of of plants and that kind of thing. It's about all I know, but uh, he had planted all these great fruit trees on one side of the backyard in our yard, and I loved it, because all these fruit trees grew like they're the kind of trees that don't usually grow well in the desert. I lived in in Phoenix long enough to know that, like, I've never seen really an Asian pear tree grow as well as these Asian pear trees grew. Never saw an apple tree grow as well as this apple tree grew. And we had citrus trees and all these other things that you typically see in Arizona. So all these wonderful trees that really produced great amounts of fruit every single year when they were supposed to, except for one small grapevine in the corner of the yard. It struggled every year. We lived there six years, and I don't think that grapevine ever produced one ripe grape. And it was frustrating to me because I saw all these wonderful trees that were producing almonds and Asian pears, all these wonderful things. And I look at this vine, and I'm like, what is wrong with you? Just grow, produce something. And so it became somewhat of an obsession for me I started to Google, how do you take care of a grapevine? And so I was watering it and fertilizing it and trying to provide the mind around sunshine and shade. And yet every year in the spring, it would sprout these leaves and it would begin to grow a little bit. And just as the early summer came in, these small grapes would show up and then they'd begin to wither before they ever ripened. And in many ways, it was so frustrating because in some ways, there's nothing more frustrating than something that shows life but then just doesn't accomplish the purpose for which it lives. And I tell you that story because as a pastor, I think, I talk to a lot of people for whom I think this is an apt description of their spiritual lives. They go through cycles where things, from time to time, they show life, and there's some fruit that grow, but in the end, they go through these cycles where things begin to wither, and in a lot of ways, the life that shows up doesn't begin to produce at least the fruit that Jesus is talking about here. We look at John 15 and we see Jesus talking about bearing much fruit and having the joy that fulfills us and having God-glorifying discipleship. All of these things that he points to as evidence of an abiding life with him. I'm afraid that for far too many of us, that seems like it's out of reach. Or it seems like it's at least not as consistent as it could be. I think all of us have experienced this at one time or another. And many times when we experience this in our lives, times of spiritual struggle or spiritual unfruitfulness, our first reaction is to course correct. And so we look at our lives and we look at all the things that we're doing, particularly the behaviors, and we decide, I've just got to do things differently. In other words, we call these spiritual disciplines often, but if I could do more Bible reading, if my devotion time was just a little bit better, if my quiet time was just a little quieter, if I had more time to pray, if I could do that, if if I could just get to church more often on Sunday mornings, Maybe if I serve the poor, maybe if I listen to more Christian music instead of something else, things would just get better. And when we look at John chapter 15, right, I think when we read this, we see these imperatives jump out to us. Imperatives are the commands. Jesus says, abide, obey, bear fruit, and love. And we fixate on those things and we decide, you know what, if we can just do those things better, I finally get that joy that Jesus is talking about here. Right, I gotta say, um, when we look at it that way, it's an adventure in missing the point. I think Jesus is saying something different, something much more profound, something much more foundational here. Going back to the example of my grapevine in my backyard. What if I decided one day that I looked at the grapevine, and the reason why the grapevine wouldn't grow, by the way, is that it was planted in a place where the afternoon sun just nailed it <laughs> during the summer. And so it, it, you know, it was just planted in the wrong place. I said, but what if I looked at that, discovered that, realized it, and thought to myself, you know what, if I can just take some of these branches off of this vine and plant them in areas around where there's better soil, where they get more shade, and I can just water them and take care of them, then they would begin to produce fruit. What if I did that, right? What if I started just clipping branches off and planting them in all kinds of different places in my backyard? Well, you don't, again, have to be a gardener to know that as soon as you clip those branches off the main stalk, they die. They begin to die. Right? It doesn't matter how much you do to water it or to plant it in good soil, to give it the shade, to give it the sunlight that it needs, that branch is just going to continue to die until it completely withers. And that's Jesus' point here. The reality in all of this is that Jesus is saying, look, abide with me. It doesn't matter how much you do that look like spiritual things, if those things are not connected to the vine, they don't produce anything. I was reading an article recently by a man by the name of Mark uh, Galley. and Mark Galli is actually the editor-in-chief of Christianity Today. It's one of the most, if not the most, uh, influential evangelical Christian publication. And several years ago, he's talking about a, a time in his life several years ago when he was still the man, one of the managing editor, editors at Christianity Today. He talked about a time in his life when he was really struggling spiritually. I think it's interesting to think about this, first of all, because he was so honest about his struggles, and secondly, because I think it speaks to the situation that we may often find ourselves in. He says this I distinctly remember thinking that my Christian life was sorely lacking in the love of God. I didn't have any affection for or yearning to know and love God. I wasn't angry with him, I didn't doubt his existence. I was being a faithful Christian as best I knew how, but it occurred to me that I didn't feel any love for God. Now, I want you to imagine that you're Mark's friend or maybe even Mark's pastor, and he comes to you and says this and he asks you, What should I do? What should I do in this situation? I think for many of us who would say, well what's your bible reading plan like? You know, what's your prayer life like? Have you been co- have you been going to church? Well, we go down the checklist of all of these things that we're supposed to be doing. And yet he says this, look, I also realized that even though I prayed and read scripture regularly, not much in my life would be different if I didn't pray and read my bible. That is I was living as a practical atheist, meaning my personal relationship with God did not really affect much inside me. I had immersed myself in enough Scripture and Christian theology to know that there was no greater desire than to yearn for God, no greater joy or happiness than to know God more and more intimately. And yet I had to admit that as I looked at my heart and my will, I had little interest to do that. I also realized that at, any, that at the moment that there was no hiding all of this from God and that God had already known the state of my heart and will for some time and that He was patiently and mercifully waiting for me to see it myself. So I wonder, how is it that we might see this in ourselves? Look again at verse 5 in John chapter 15, because I think this is the key to the entire passage in terms of how it starts to apply to our lives. In the second part of that verse, Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Now the lens that we might typically read this from is like Jesus is telling us to do all these things and so I need to have the spiritual vitality, the spiritual power to do these things and so I need to stay connected to Jesus, almost like a spiritual conduit so that I can do the things that Jesus wants me to do so that I can be pleasing to him. And I can be accepted by him. And I can be loved by him. But is that what Jesus is saying? You know that our focus this morning is abide in. And there's reason for that, right? When you read through John 15, you cannot escape Jesus' refrain about abiding in him. It happens ten times in the first ten verses. It happens three times in verse four alone. At least a few of these are commands. They're in the command form, the imperative form, abide in me. But we see it over and over and over again. Jesus is pointing us to the fact that we need to abide in him. Now, to show you how important that word abide is, I'm going to do the whole Greek word thing, right? So just be prepared for that. But the word abide here is the Greek word meno. If we have a slide there, it'll show you this. This is what, in context, it means a lot of things in Greek, but in context it probably means these things most directly. It means abide, it means remain. That's why in some of your translations it may kind of go back and forth between abide and remain. Just know that when it's remain, it's the same word meno. I like the ESV translation that I just read from because it repeats abide over and over again in every situation. Kind of repetitive that way. But it also means to dwell, to continue to be present, and to remain as one. And one thing that I want you to notice is that even when Jesus commands these, even when these uh, uh, commands or imperatives or, or abide is in the imperative or command form, he's not telling us to start something. He's actually inviting us into something that has already been started. Abide, continue, remain. And what is it that Jesus is inviting us into? You may have noticed that at the beginning of John chapter 15, in the very first verse, Jesus says, I am the true vine. John gives us seven different statements where Jesus says, I am, throughout the Gospels. This is the last of the seven in John chapter 15 which has huge significance in going back to the Old Testament. If we remember when God introduced himself to Moses in the burning bush, Moses said, who shall I say that has sent me? Who shall I tell the Israelites and the Egyptians that has sent me? And God says, you tell them the I am has sent you, the self-existent one. I am who I am. I am who I will be. In other words, I am the one true God, the creator. I was not created. I am eternal. And when Jesus picks this up, he is saying, I am the divine, eternal son of God. And when he applies this metaphor to himself, it's not a metaphor that's pulled out of thin air. It's a metaphor that, again, connects to the Old Testament story. Because numerous times throughout the Old Testament, God refers to Israel, his people, as the vine. They were designed to be the people who were the vine in the desert, who who produced and bore fruit as evidence of the fact that their God, Yahweh, was the one true God, and he was dwelling among them. Now if you know the Old Testament, you know that didn't go too well for Israel. And so when Jesus steps onto the scene, he says, I am the vine, the faithful Israelite. I am the one who produces the true fruit. This is who I am. He is the one who is now fulfilling the hopes and promises of Israel from the Old Testament, of God's people. He is the substance of that. And what promises are those? Well, some of some, some examples of that would be in Jeremiah chapter 31. God says this through the prophet Jeremiah, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Take a look also at Ezekiel 36, verses 26 through 28. And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. But these promises hit on what is the most important and central blessing in all of scripture, that God would dwell with his people. From the beginning to the end, Genesis chapter 1 and 2, in the creation story, God's dwelling with his people. We can see it in Exodus chapter 32. We can see it in John chapter 1. We can see it in places like at the cross, Jesus, who is the atoning sacrifice that reconciles us again to be with God. Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit, who comes at Pentecost to indwell believers to be with them again. In Paul's letters, one of the most frequent phrases that he uses over and over again to talk about our identity is that we are in Christ. And then one of the most beautiful statements in all of this, in Revelation 21, when we see what the blessed hope looks like, when Jesus consummates His kingdom, when the new heavens and the new earth are completed and we see all that we are to be in the eternal state, Revelation 21.3 says this. This is the big celebratory statement of what is going on. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Now look, this is probably not the first time you've heard this. However, the question becomes, why don't we live this way more consistently in a way that dwells with God? Why do we need to be reminded ten times in John chapter 15 to abide with Jesus. I think that much of the crux of the issue that faces us is an un- a proper understanding of, again, what Jesus is inviting us into and what he has accomplished. This brings the crux to one of the, one of the most, one of my favorite biblical interpretation uh, principles, which is simply this. The indicative comes before the imperative. I know that doesn't sound all that exciting, right? But stay with me on this. What this means is that every single time in Scripture before God gives us imperatives, before He gives us commands, He gives us the indicative. What is the indicative? The indicative is what He has already done for us and how He has already established us and given us an identity as His people. It's only after the indicative that God gives the imperative. This is true all the way from the beginning of Scripture. Talk about the creation story. God creates us in his image. He gives us this wonderful creation to enjoy, and then he says, this is what you're to do with it. This is what you're not to do with it. But this is who you are created for fellowship with me in my image. One of the greatest examples of this is actually in the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus, because one of the most famous, if not the most famous set of imperatives in all of the Bible comes from Exodus chapter 20, the Ten Commandments. But what often gets overlooked is the chapter that comes right before Exodus 20, and that's Exodus 19. This is the indicative for Israel before they're given the imperatives. We're told that God calls Moses to him, and the people are all gathered at the base of Mount Sinai after being delivered from Egypt, and God says to Moses, "Tell the people this." In other words, tell the people who they are." He says, "Look, I've delivered you and saved you from bondage in Egypt, and I've brought you to myself on eagles wings." This is what I've done, and this is now your situation. And then he says, this is who you are. You are my treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. This is, what you've, this is what I've done. This is who you are. And it's only after God gives that to Israel that he gives them the imperatives. Now, why is this important? Here's why this is important for John 15 and your relationship with Jesus. So, we've talked about, there are certainly imperatives in this chapter. But, these imperatives are dependent upon the same idea, the indicatives of what Jesus has already done for us by his redemptive work. And there are several that you can see in this, if we can just like slow down to take a look at them. I made a list for you this morning, if we have those slide up there, and it's really small, I don't even know, oh yeah, it's bigger back here, okay, great. But you see a list of them. He has chosen you, verse 16. If you are in Christ, if you have received the redemptive work of Jesus by faith, this is who you are. These are the indicatives. He has chosen you. He has loved you to the point of death, verse 13. He has forgiven you and made you clean, verse 3. He has given you new life, verse 4. He also indwells you by His Spirit, in verse 4. He has transformed you and made you new. Verse two, he has given you a new identity and a destiny in verse 15. Also in verse 15, he has given you his words. He has revealed himself through his word and then finally he has given you true joy. That's just a sampling, I think, of what is going on in John 15. And here's the point. In all of this, this is what Jesus is inviting us into. It's not about what we do. It's about what he has already done to make us who we are in christ and so with all this in mind let's look at that critical phrase again from verse five where jesus says apart from me you can do nothing instead of the focus being on here's all the stuff you need to do for god and let's stay connected to jesus so that we can do spiritual things with power jesus is inviting us into what he has already done for us says look apart from me you can do nothing You can do all the spiritual things that look spiritual on the outside. You can do all the religious things, but if you are not connected to me, it counts for nothing. It's worthless. Apart from me, you can do nothing. There's nothing of value in that. Look, friends, we're not playing a game of spiritual chicken with Jesus to see who's going to make the first move. Jesus has made all the moves already. And he simply says, come, abide in me, abide in my love and my grace. And so why the imperatives then? Why are there commands in this? Well, as Jesus says in verse 8, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. The fruit is the proof that we have been with Jesus. The fruit is the proof that we are connected and we abide with him. We don't do the things so that we can abide with him. We abide with him so that fruit is is born through our lives. And that's an important distinction to get down. Jesus still produces the fruit. We don't. A branch is powerless to produce its own fruit. But as it's connected to the vine, it can't help but bear fruit. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 says this, Now if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? The Apostle Paul's referring to uh, what we know from the book of Exodus where Moses would meet with God in the tabernacle. You may remember this. Moses would meet with God and as we're told by Scripture, he would talk with God as a man does to his friend. And those meetings were so intimate that when Moses came out, his face literally shone and it freaked the Israelites out. So he had to start wearing a veil because his face would shine. It was evidence of the fact that he had been with God. And Paul says, look, as amazing as that was, that was Moses just meeting with God in a tabernacle. As a new new covenant Christian, as a born-again Christian, you are someone in whom the very person of God dwells. How much more should the glory be seen through your life? Paul continues, he says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And what is this fruit? What is this glory? Jesus hits on it throughout John 15. It's about love. It comes down to what we love. What do we desire more than anything? What do we love more than anything? Jesus says, look, there is no greater love than that a man would lay down his life for his friend. Of course, he's referring to the the way that he showed his love to us by laying down his life on the cross. And he says then, abide in my love. Is this what you desire more than anything, to be with Jesus? Do we hunger for more of who Jesus is? Do we long to know and to love God more? That is what this fruit looks like. What do we really love? I want to read you a uh, quote from John Piper that I read several years ago, and for me, at the time, it was convicting. It helped to expose some things in my life and in my heart. I was a Christian, and I thought at that time I was actually in ministry even. I was on pastoral staff, and I read this, and it just wrecked me. I want you to listen to this question and allow it to be something that maybe you respond to in your own heart as well. John Piper says, as it gets to that issue of like, what do we really love? If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you've ever had on earth and all the food you've ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you've ever tasted and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? All of those things there. Could you be satisfied with all of that? Everything perfect, if Christ were not there? When I first read that question, I, yeah, of course I would. Then I began thinking about it a little bit more and more, because then I realized this is not a hypothetical question. It's actually a question of current assessment, because you can look at your life and you can kind of answer that already. Am I enjoying all the things, and does Jesus just kind of easily lift out? Or is my life lack satisfaction if I am not abiding with Jesus? If he is not the thing that I love the most in my life, do I feel a sense of dissatisfaction at any given moment? Look, the reason that you were saved, the reason that you were forgiven if you're a Christian, the reason that you were given eternal life is not just to be saved, forgiven, and given eternal life. Those are all things that bring you to a greater purpose and that is to be brought to Jesus. The greatest blessing is to abide with him. That's the point of it all. Jesus is not a means to a greater end. Jesus is the greater end. Jesus is not a ticket to heaven. He is the point of heaven. Jesus does not save us to something. He saves us to himself. Because that's true, we are not given Jesus so that we can have faith. We are given faith so that we can have Jesus. We are not given forgiveness so that we can just be forgiven. We are given forgiveness so that we can have Jesus. And we are not given new life so that we can just be transformed. We are given new life. You know the answer. So that we can have Jesus. It's the point of it all. We've covered a lot of ground this morning. (laughs) And so what I want to do with the last couple minutes that we have is just to respond to the Lord, we addressed all kinds of different ways that we may have walked in this morning, in different spiritual states, in different spiritual mindsets in our hearts. But I want to take a couple minutes to respond to this. You know, I was in Spain a couple weeks ago visiting a missionary from one of our from our church out in Portland, and uh, he had this beautiful grapevine that was growing in the courtyard where he was at, where they do ministry in the neighborhood. And he was growing this community garden, and one of the things, the biggest thing, was this huge grapevine, and of course. Given my history in growing grapevines, I was fascinated with how beautiful this thing was. It was bearing, I already had these like clusters of grapes that just dropped down in these perfect triangular pyramid shapes. I was like, man, that's amazing. I I, I bet you can grow great things out here in Spain and and, and the weather's perfect. And he said, well, it's actually a lot of hard work. See, I've got it on the trellis and then I have to trim that thing all the time because it grows out of control. And so each branch that I trim, I trim it in a way so that it grows exactly to where it needs to grow so that according to and he, he explained it and I, I got lost in it. It's probably why I was never good with my grapevine. But basically the point of it was this, is that there's an art and a science to trimming it back so that it grows more fruit. I was reminded of this passage as he said that. And here's the thing, is that the Holy Spirit in our lives, as God who is the Father, who is the gardener, trims things back in our lives, he does it because he loves us and he does it for greater joy as Jesus says and it may hurt, it may be difficult but the Holy Spirit's role in our lives is to ruthlessly uproot everything that we consider to be more glorious than Jesus so I want to pray this morning as we think that the question that I want us to think about is let's not think for for a moment as great as the spiritual disciplines are and as important as all those things are in our lives let's not for a moment think about all the things that you are doing for God But ask this question, are you living with God? Are you abiding with Jesus? Do those things that you do have their purpose in connecting you even more into abiding with who Jesus is? Let's pray this morning. Father God, we thank you that you are faithful and searching our hearts. And although we admit, Lord, that many times when you send your spirit to do some trimming in our lives and and reveal some things that need to be revealed, it's a painful process. We resist it. We don't like it. It's tough in the moment. But as your word says all discipline in the end although it is not pleasant produces bountiful fruit and I pray Lord that you would stoke a desire in our hearts to know more of you to understand what it means to really love you I think if we are at the place where we think that we've understood that completely we're probably in the most dangerous place And so spirit reveal to us even more of the love of God this morning Cause us to do something that we cannot do on our own so we are completely dependent upon you which is to stoke our desire for who Jesus is so that we may abide well and dwell with him. Lord, that you would be glorified and that we would experience that true joy that you talk about here. Lord Jesus, thank you for your love for us. Love that is so amazing that is indescribable the depths of which we cannot search, the depths of which we'll spend an eternity trying to understand. We are grateful for all of the things that you have done to bring us to yourself. And as you invite us to abide with you, even in this moment, I pray that we would respond in faith. No matter where we are, no matter how well we know you, no matter what our history is, no matter how much we feel we've done in the past, this moment right now, this day right now, is a new day to love you and to abide with you. We thank you for that, Lord Jesus. We praise you for all that you are and all that you have done. It's in your name that we pray, amen.